This is the Beard Winner Podcast, Episode 7. Hey everybody, thank you so much for tuning into the Beard Winner Podcast. I hope the past two weeks have flown by exceptionally fast for you because I teased that we were going to have someone on the podcast who I view as a bourbon expert. I found this gentleman because I was trying to get into bourbon and I wanted resources. There were a ton of blogs out there. There were actually a ton of podcasts out there as far as resources to find about bourbon, but everybody seemed a little bit pompous and a little bit too high on the horse. And I met Kenny and Kenny was really just the amazing guy and the amazing voice that wasn't douchey. And I'm really delighted. It's been about two years since I've talked to him and I want to welcome Kenny Coleman from the Bourbon Pursuit podcast under the Beard Winner. How are you doing, man? Oh, thanks for having me, Darren. I appreciate it. It has been a while. I mean, I remember the first time that we chatted, it was, you know, we were recording a podcast with you on my podcast because we wanted to kind of understand you know, how does somebody new into bourbon really start their journey? And, and there was a lot of people that related with you. There was a a lot of good comments that came out of it. So trying to figure out how we help people navigate this, this realm is, is always an interesting take. Oh yeah. And, and your podcast grew. I mean, I saw it start from, you know, humble beginnings to being more and more well-produced. And one thing that comes to mind with me just being on episode six or episode seven now uh, what are some of the largest obstacles that you guys had when getting it off the ground? Oh gosh, you know I think there's there's a there's a few things. You know, for anybody that isn't you know in, inept to this world, like you have to have a little bit of a technology like hurdle, right? I mean, that's just something that you have to come over. As we before we started recording here, I mean, you're recording the way that you're capturing audio through Zoom into your own Zoom versus something that people use other kind of services online. So there's just, there's so many ways that you can do that. So once you figure out the technology portion and then hopefully, you know, that you always want to have some sort of personality that people are attracted to, that that's why they want to listen to you. So that's, that's number two. But the third part that I think is, is really gets the hardest and, and really kind of what hit me in the very beginning uh, was a sense of burnout. Um, you, you're definitely going to get there. Like I know you're on this episode seven, which is, which is awesome. I, I remember uh, the first episodes of ours, which you're probably going to have way better quality than we did in the beginning. But, you know, after a while you, you kind of start seeing the numbers grow a little bit by little bit by little bit. And then you have to figure out like, okay, what am I, what am I doing this for? Is this a hobby? Is this a business? How much time am I really putting into this? And it, it got to the point where, I was putting in uh, probably around additional 30 hours a week on top of my job of 40 hours a week to, as you probably already know, research, find guests, um, get everything lined up. It's a lot of logistical planning. What we're doing right now, the talking, this is the easy part. I mean, this is, this is the fun stuff. Um, so the logistical planning, post-production, um, marketing efforts, and trying to get new people to listen to it. So there's a lot of things that go into it. And, you know, fast forward, you know, you, you'll probably be like 50, 60 episodes in, and then you'll realize like, okay, there's a lot of time that I'm investing here. What's my ROI? Um, am I able to get advertisers? And do I have, uh, you know, the way that we've done things, like, do I have a community behind that can help support it and help grow it? So finding some sort of, um, it may not be monetary for you. Maybe it's something else. I know a lot of people start podcasts that help them 
with their own businesses that they actually run. So if they're a consulting company and they get their podcast out there because, you know, people listen to them, they sound smart and then like, oh, okay, well, I'm also a consultant, go and, you know, hire me for this. So just trying to figure out a way, like, how do you get your ROI out of it is, is one of the, I think the biggest hurdles that, that most people will find as you get really deep into it. And after you started really honing the craft itself. Yeah. And I, and I noticed one thing that stood out was that you said community building. So did you guys use social media to build out your community? And did you focus on one platform over the other? Because I started finding out the hard way that if I try to post Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, all of the above at once, you know, go full throttle, I'm going to burn out. And is, is there one that has given you a better ROI than, you know, another? I think it's, it's a little bit multifold, if you will. So let's, let's, I'll, I'll kind of, I'll kind of take this from a, a different angle. So the way that we sort of got a jumping board and really launched, and perhaps this was me, maybe it was, maybe it was really smart of me at the time. I remember our, our first few episodes, I was like, okay, we've got to really like nail these out of the park. You know, we've got to really hit them out of the park if we want to, you know, make a, make a name and make this big. And so one of the first things we did is we had, and I mean, we're a bourbon podcast. So that's what we're always, that's where all we're focused on. And there was a, a pretty prominent blogger at the time who Blake over at bourboner.com. And we asked him to be on episode five and he has like 30,000 people in a distribution list for email. And so we knew that when we were able to publish his podcast, it was going to get pushed to 30,000 people it was an easy way to kind of get a springboard and really find those, um, like I said, find those people that have a large audience already and, and use that as kind of a, a jumping off mechanism. So that was one part of it. Um, the other part is, yeah, you need to, you know, a, I think Darren, I mean, when you're thinking about this, when you're trying to think of the name for your podcast, you're like, okay, maybe I got a name. Oh crap. The domain name's taken or the Instagram handles taken. Like just coming up with the name alone is, is tough. So, Oh, I can understand completely. Like when I started the podcast, actually my buddy, he designs beer labels and he, I was talking to him on what's that from, um, New Zealand where he's at currently. And I was going with one dude, one beard. And he said, man, do you really want to type that into your mobile browser and go to that.com? And I said, no. And he types in beard winner. He's like, beard winner's not taken. So I went over to GoDaddy, purchased it, swooped it up and it seemed to have a nice flow. And it just kind of fell into place because I had the right person there to get me in the right direction. For sure. I mean, that's, that's one of those things. So if you got the name next is you got to establish and you got to take all the social handles at least as you can. Um, and for me, you know, we started a lot back then on, on like Twitter was kind of like the, where we started because we thought that was a good form of engagement because in my own personal career with technology, that's where a lot of people in that technology realm, that's where they, they congregate and that's where they gather. Um, then we saw the rise of, of Facebook and Facebook bourbon groups and everything like that. So we put a lot of effort over into Facebook next. Um, and you know, now we amassed like 10,000, 11,000 followers in there or something like that. And then we were late to the game on Instagram. I'll be, I'll be the first to say it. Cause I remember, I think it was like 2015, 2016. I was like, eh, pictures, who gives a crap, right? Like <laughs> yeah. whatever. And and so we relate to the game. So we've had to play some catch up on it. But, you know, it's really weird the way social media platforms work and how people follow it and how people find it. I mean, we surpassed um, our, our I mean, Instagram is like up to like 35,000 followers. So like we totally like blew away 
you know, how many people that are following us on, on Facebook and Twitter combined. And then the, oddly enough, TikTok, when we actually get on TikTok, I mean, we've got like, I think like almost like 20 or 25,000 followers. And we did that over like a three month period or four month period of time. Wow. It took us, yeah, it took us, it took us four or five years to get 10,000 followers on Twitter. And so, I mean, the way that social media is changing and how it's booming, it just depends on where those consumers really are and where the people, you know, where can you find the outlet for those listeners? I still personally feel like Facebook is a good way for us just because anybody that is doing a lot of stuff within bourbon, there's bourbon groups. And so that's just where people congregate. So I, I tend to look at Facebook as, as being a good outlet. However, Instagram is proving to be a very, very good model um, of just being able to do just engagement with, with people. Oh yeah. And any way that you guys do it, you've always been on top of keeping your podcast different and being as falling from that pitfall of podcast being one-sided. It was very dialectic to work with you guys. You felt like you're part of a community. I remember sending you a message when I did a Pappy flight, um, and just being able to have that response back. And, you know, that sense of community is what I'm trying to build with this podcast. So maybe creating a Facebook group in addition to just having the Facebook page would be beneficial for anyone who's starting a podcast and want that sense of community to be built. Yeah. And it makes sense for a lot of people to build those Facebook groups. We personally didn't do it. Um, I've struggled with this time and time again, because I know, well, we, we've got our, our Patreon community and that's how we support this podcast or our podcast. And with inside of that community, I mean, we've got, you know, almost 900 people in it and they get messages in their inbox when I, you know, put a post out there and it blasts them. Um, and we're always trying to figure out ways to keep them engaged. So I've always thought to myself like, oh, would a Facebook group be good? Because anybody can go, anybody can post, anybody can do this. It's another outlet for us to be able to get the podcast maybe into the, the ears of new listeners. But come to find out, I don't, I, I realize that that's, a, a whole nother level of management because I know that there's other similar podcasts. There's other Facebook groups, you know, like Blake from bourbon that I mentioned earlier, like it's up to like 30,000 people. It's un, it becomes unmanageable. You have to have a team to do it. So it's always been one thing that I thought it might be fun to do. However, I just don't know if I need another, uh, another, we can say just something else to manage. And so, I need a little bit of time back for myself and that's where I, I don't start the Facebook group and we just focus on the page. Yeah. I mean, it's good to focus on those core competencies. And like you said, a lot changes. I mean, when I talked to you in 2018, that was my perception of when hunting really started to explode and just looking at it now so we can get into the meat and the potatoes for all the bourbon hunters out there. What do you believe is kind of the best approach for someone who's still green, a newbie, it's just so they don't do what I did and go off the deep end looking for the impossible bottles. You know, are there still those valuable bottles that are, you're going to get a, a good taste for what you're paying? So I, I look at it as everybody kind of goes on a journey and you're probably going to be introduced to it from a friend, from a relative. And, and once you find that you enjoy it and, and it's not going to, at some point you're going to find that you enjoy it without Coke. Um, and then you'll get to the point where you're just adding ice. I mean, we always talk about this as the journey of a, of a bourbon drinker is, you know, you, you start mixing the Coke and then you remove the Coke and then later on you remove the ice. And then all of a sudden you're drinking 130 or 135 proof bourbon neat. And you're like, mm, I don't know. It, it doesn't have enough there for me. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny how we, we, we progressively take this point where your esophagus just doesn't feel it anymore. And so, um, 
for anybody that's looking to get started, you always want to just look at stuff that's on the shelf, stuff that's readily available. Go and I would always say grab something from, you know, five or six bottles from some of the main distilleries, you know, like go grab um, something from an old Forrester line, go grab something from a Jim Beam family. So maybe that's a Knob Creek. Maybe if it's a Booker's, if you really want to go off the deep end and go, go full barrel strength on your first offering, I probably would pull it back just a little bit. Just a hair. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I would also personally try to not go with Basil Hayden because Basil Hayden is super watered down. It's 80 proof. It's very nice packaging. However, a lot of the same liquid that goes into it is what you find in old granddad 114. Um, so there's, there's a lot of cool, like little tricks of the trade that you'll find when you start getting into bourbon. Uh, of course you need something that's from heaven Hill. So maybe it's an Elijah Craig, um, maybe it's a larceny if you want to get into the weeded side and speaking of weeded side, I mean, you always know makers, Mark makers is just a standard, uh, weeded bourbon that's always out there and it's always solid. So start off with five or six, try and do it at a few different distilleries. If you want to do something that's really off the deep end, you know, find something that's from a craft distillery, but aged somewhere like four to six years old. And, and you'll find a more nuanced of flavors and you'll be able to kind of like start building your palate a little bit more and start really figuring out, dialing in exactly what you want. After that, then you can start looking into, okay, well, what are the other things that I have not tried? Can I find other friends that have these and I can go try them? And, you know, as we always talk about all the time, you know, you have these things called bottle shares. And so people come, they'll bring, you know, six bottles, everybody brings six bottles. And all of a sudden you've got 150 bottles on the table and you can try and to your heart's content. Um, but you know, once you get into the point of, all right, well, what other bourbons have I, am I missing or have I never tried? And that's, as you had mentioned before, we need to kind of get into this unicorn chase and it's a tough game and it's gotten so much more tougher. Like I got, I really got hooked into like the, the higher, more rare stuff, or should I say higher and more rare stuff around like 2014 when it was still somewhat accessible. I mean, I was still camping in parking lots to get Pappy Van Winkle, but today like those things it's, it's done. Right. So I don't even attempt to go for it anymore. Um, it's really tough to, to do the, to do the hunt, to do the chase. Um, but I've also a blessed because I got into it a little bit early enough that I've amassed a lot, probably more than I could drink in my lifetime. Um, but you know, for people that are getting into it now, it is tough because of a few reasons. One, you likely don't have those relationships with the stores that other people already do. So you're late to the game. Uh, two, any stores that know what they have, they're now starting to charge exorbitant prices. Even in here in Kentucky, we call the, you know, the capital of bourbon, like there's bourbon literally everywhere around Kentucky. And you, I can guarantee you, you cannot go to any store here in Kentucky and you can find, you can't find a bottle of Weller at wow. all. Just a green label Weller. You can't even find it. And sometimes if you do, it's a hundred to $200. And, and it, it, like I said, that's just the nature of what it is here in Kentucky. Now it's, it's, it sucks. That's the way it is. However, that's just the, you know, people started realizing that these secondary markets start taking over things are, you know, it's just a, a fluctuation of price and demand uh, or sorry, uh, demand and supply. So when you start getting into this, like I said, it's tough to do it as a new bourbon chaser. Um, the only thing you can really do is start being loyal to one store, making sure that one store 
notices you and that you are also not shopping at those stores that already charge an exorbitant amount because they're not going to sell to you for a fair price anyway when it does come in. Oh, yeah. And, and finding those stores when, when you first started, the ones that were green to knowing what they had, did you ever look at the price that was maybe $50 less than what it was going for as far as like a fair secondary price and say, hey, I'm going to give you an extra 25 just to make it right to build that relationship? Because I've had a lot of buddies who have went that approach with some greener stores here in Nebraska. And now every time something rare comes in, like we just had some uh, stuff come in from Saz, they got a phone call. So, I mean, do you think that's a good approach or do you think that's driving up prices? Honestly, I never really thought about it before. It is a, it is a good approach. You know, when I look at it, um, liquor stores are already making their margin on the product. And they're, when, I, when I say they're making margin, they're usually charging 25 to 35% over what they paid for it from a distributor. So they're making a they're making pretty good chunk of change on on anything they sell. Um, however, it is it, it is volume, right? They do have to sell a lot. And in my personal opinion, they will end up creating you know more enemies and and more work for themselves if they have like say one bottle of Old Rip Van Winkle ten year and they want to sell it for five hundred dollars versus selling it to their best customer that's in there every single week buying something um, and they might spend you know, $400, maybe, maybe every two weeks in there, maybe, maybe every month. Um, and so are you really going to try and make a $350 profit off of something that you got from a distributor versus keeping somebody that's putting, you know, we'll just say, you know, $4,000 in your pocket every single year. So I look at it as a way that that is, that is good nature of them to be able to, you know, help the store. However, I feel the stores themselves are already doing pretty well. Um, and so if I don't think they're, they're not gonna be able to, they're not going to miss their mortgage payment because they can't sell a Palo Papi for, you know, five or $600, right? Like True. I, I feel that they should reward best customers because those are the ones that are going to keep them business continually staying there and continually buying stuff from them. And when I say buying stuff from them, it might just not be beer and wine and liquor. If you're, store sells honey buns or it sells you know artisan cheese and bread like go buy literally go shopping there right so you, you try to put as much money in their pocket as possible and and it usually works out in your favor if you do that and and they have to know your face so you got to have a conversation with them too you just can't show up and buy stuff and leave and think that they're gonna be like oh hey did you want this yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I think that's how I found my first bottle. And I know it's overhyped, but it was Rhetoric 23. I went in um, constantly to this one bigger box store that's kind of like a Kroger. And the gentleman, I was buying Stag Jr. at the time when it was still on the shelf. And the guy said, oh, do you want this? And I looked at him like, I don't even know what the heck it was. That's how green I was. And I walked out and I called a buddy that was a bartender. And I said, yeah, they have this stuff called Orphan Barrel Rhetoric 23 on the shelf. And it's like a hundred bucks. And he's like, get it now. And so I went in and I, and I bought it and I built that relationship with the store manager at the wine and spirits. And, you know, for a long time, he would call me when he had special stuff come in and I was fair when it came to prices, when he was underpricing it as well. That's, that's awful novel of you. But there's the other thing is, did you notice like when you first start getting into this and it happened to me too, was I was, when I was just drinking bourbon, just to drink bourbon, I mean, I was paying like 25, $35 a bottle. And then now you start getting into like the rare and high end stuff and a hundred dollars is usually a steal and you're like, Oh gosh, this just got expensive real quick. <laughs> oh, I noticed that. Like when I was first starting, we, we were having the discussion and actually, you know, with your round tables, we were discussing how Booker's was one of those value bourbons for a long time. And then they did the whole thing in 2016 where they 
limited their batches to six. And then in 2017, they shrunk it down to four. And then they just started playing that game where they're just like, all right, let's get it up to that $70 price point to see how high we can push the envelope. Yeah, which, and it's still a solid bourbon for $70, but it's a lot that's been said for bourbon in general. As the category as a whole, I feel has been underpriced and undervaluated or undervalued for a very, very long time. I mean, this is bourbon was pretty much, a, you know, it's a common man's whiskey. It's not, there was nothing in bourbon. We'll rewind back five, six, seven years ago. It wasn't at the level where scotches were still selling for, you know, like 50,000 bottles, $50,000 bottles of scotch. It still doesn't happen in the bourbon world. There's no $50,000 bottle of bourbon. So it just kind of goes to show that there is still a, a a humble beginnings when it comes to bourbon, but the category is continuing to grow. And with growth, you know, you kind of want to inch away and start cutting at scotch a little bit. Um, and so we'll continue to see bourbon prices rise. I don't think it's, it's going to continue to do it because it's currently in a heyday and it's not going to rise to the point where people like, you know, the Sazerac, they're not going to sit there and be like, well, I can see that. Old Rip Van or Pappy Twenty Three sells for two thousand dollars on the secondary market. Well, let's go ahead and we'll charge our distributors fifteen hundred dollars so we can make the most of it. They're not going to do that, right? I mean, anybody that's in this looks at it as the long game, and a lot of people that are doing it right are not going to start charging secondary prices because they want to make sure that they don't really kind of take off their existing consumer base. So, you keep the consumers happy; they're going to be there for the next you know two twenty years down the road as whiskey continually matures and they can hopefully keep up with the, uh, the ever growing demand of it. Yeah. And I, I, one thing that was, I don't know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories when it comes to bourbon and why it's so allocated and hard to find. Like you go to certain States like Illinois and pop into Chicago where you have really high population density and you're like, how in the heck do they have three bottles of um, William LaRue Weller sitting on the shelf there? And then, I actually had the audacity to call up a Sazerac rep and say, is Republic National, um, the, our distributor here in Nebraska, are they holding bottles for special people? And the guy called me back and he actually put it into perspective. He said, your state got three bottles of Sazerac 17 this year, just to give you an idea of how rare it is. And he said, but our strategy at the time, and this is me roughly quoting him, was we want more impressions. We would rather go to a bar and have the bartender pour it to X amount of people versus have one person enjoy a bottle with maybe three or four friends at the most. Do you think that's still kind of what distillers are going for, even now that you've grown into having your own spirits? So I don't know if it's a distiller thing, more or less if it's a distributor thing, because here, here's the, the way, and the three-tier system's just jacked, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, oh, yeah. it, is a, it is a, for anybody that, that doesn't know about the three-tier system, it is an organized form of, of the mob is really what <laughs> yeah. it is. And it's a legalized form of it where say as if let's just say that you're like, let's just say, Darren, you wanted to create your own line of essential beard oils. We'll just say that. Right. And, and if you know, you go and you create the product and do all this kind of stuff. Um, and then I say, Darren, I'm growing my beard. I love your oil, man. Can I buy some off you? And you're like, actually you can't, you got to go and you got to talk to, you know, somebody else. Basically you have to find this person in the middle, uh, this middleman, you can't sell direct to consumer. And so when I, when I look at this, and this is the sort of the problem is that when Sazerac or anybody hands everything over, they hand it over to the distributor. After that, it's in their hands. Um, the only thing that, you know, Sazerac or anybody else that's in the position, they can only threaten to take away and move to another distributor. However, 
the distribution system, there's only really like two players that are large enough that can actually satisfy a, like a nationwide demand or a nationwide uh, distribution model. So there's, you're, you're kind of like really stuck between a rock and a hard place with it. So after it's in the hands of the distributor, they can do whatever they want with it. So if they feel like impressions is the best way to do it, fine. If they want to hold back a bottle, and by the way, I have seen this and heard of it done before because I was in my local liquor store and I saw somebody checking out with a Michter's 20. What? And I was like, that's really weird because, I mean, this was a few years ago, but I was like, he usually is pretty good to me. And he and I've asked for this stuff before. And, you know, he told me, told me exactly what happened. He said that the distributor held it back, sent it to his store and said, please hold this. I'm going to come pick it up later. And so he, he actually, I mean, exactly what happened. So the distributor sent it to the store, made the store hold it for him. He went to the store and then purchased it himself, right? So completely jacked on how this whole thing works. Um, but the think the good thing is, is that with the pandemic and everything that's been happening is that there's been a huge surge in the way that people are buying things and and how it's had to disrupt this legacy system and when i just say legacy system you have distribution you have the idea that you couldn't ship whiskey you can't even get cocktails to go i mean we're legalizing marijuana in a new state like every other month it seems like yet alcohol something that's been around since the 19 past the 1930s since prohibition ended it's still regulated as if it was cocaine. True. So, I mean, it's definitely, and, and maybe cocaine's a far, far stretch here. It's definitely not. It's definitely not it's no, not no, no. Because there's actually no regulation of cocaine. I'm just saying it, it definitely doesn't have, um, you know, there's just a model that hasn't been able to fit uh, the, the, the new consumer demand because we live in an Amazon age. We expect to be able to buy now, click, have it delivered. And that's one thing that, you know, we're slowly getting at for alcohol now. And I've noticed that that push, I don't know if it's in your area because you're in the heart of bourbon country, but even bourbon related, bourbon related beers like um, Kentucky Bourbon Stout from Founders up in Minnesota, I mentioned this on the previous podcast, I've noticed that these stores are just getting flooded with weird things like um, the Kroger, we, they're called high V grocery stores here, the, one of the bartenders here where I tried Michter's Celebration 20 said, it seems like uh, you know these distributors are just dumping them in the stores and they're not really caring where they're going. Do you think that they're getting sloppy or they're just overwhelmed with the amount of product that's finally being pushed out from the warehouses to the distributors? Um, I don't really know. I mean, it's it's definitely there could be a, a few different angles to it. You know, we're we're going to see in the next few years that there is going to be a lot of new bourbons and rye that are available on the market because anybody that's putting down bourbon now knows that it's really not going to be good until it's four to six years old. And we're now just now starting to hit that threshold where we're going to start seeing more good whiskey come out on the market. And this is not just from the big people. This is all the crap distillers out there, people that have just been starting. And so you have a huge variety of flavors and it's now going to hit to the point where how do they fight for shelf space? I mean, there's, there's limited shelf space in stores. And so when these distributors, I mean, their goal is to sell. And so they've got to go into all these liquor stores and they've got to say, hey, try this product that's from a local distillery in Nebraska. We'll just say that, for instance. And they'll try it and then we got to expand. They got to get out of Nebraska. They got to get into Oklahoma. They got to get into Texas. They got to get in all these places. So we're going to see that um, continually grow. Uh, but like I said, as as regards of like how much they're, they're getting, you know, allocation is always going to be based on how much you sell and 
as more and more people enter the market, um, it's going to continually change. Uh, you know, the other thing is, you know, distributors also play those games of, you know, if you buy me, if you buy X cases of skinny girl martini or skinny girl vodka or margarita, whatever it is, you know, we'll throw in, you know, a, an extra bottle of Van Winkle. So there's a lot of those, those kind of like shady under the, you know, under the cover kind of those things that are just, you know, it's just the nature of the game and it has to be disrupted at some point. No. And, and I, I think that the boutique and the craft distilleries are really disrupting things and allowing people to see that there's a finite amount and actually be upfront with it. And you guys actually started, you and Ryan started pursuit spirits. And what was that like as far as the journey? I, I know that we don't have time to discuss every nuance of it in this podcast, but did you guys have to jump through a ton of hoops? Cause my dad tried to make wine a couple years ago and it goes back to that story you just told moments ago. He's like getting all these compliments, winning amateur wine contest and his friend's like, I want to buy a bottle. And he's like, I can give you a bottle and that's it, but I can't sell it to you. So we actually had a podcast. We aired very, I'd say recently, it's probably about a month or two ago. It was actually called the How We Built Pursuit series. And it tells our whole story. But to kind of give you the Cliff Notes version of it, you know, we started, we actually received, a, I received a phone call after we reviewed a whiskey on one of our podcasts. And somebody said, hey, I helped build that brand. Would you be interested in doing your own? we had never thought we were going to start a whiskey brand like never even crossed our mind so we we talked to him long story short we find out like it's incredible whiskey that's great let's do this and we became you know ndps or, or non-distilling producers and so we go and we buy barrels on the open market uh, and we bottle them and we we sell them ourselves uh, we're a little bit unique in the fact that we get to hand select every single barrel that we do which is very different than the rest of the market because everybody else has to pay an exorbitant amount of upfront costs. Um, like when I say exorbitant, like you're putting down like, you know, it, at the very minimum, like a quarter million dollars to go and buy a bunch of bottles or a bunch of barrels. And then you sell it from there. So we can kind of piecemeal it. So we had a very good opportunity to kind of uh, slowly build this process. And, and so when we were starting this, we knew that we needed to figure out like, how do we get this in the hands of our supporters across the country? We are, like I said, we're two guys at the, in, the, in a podcast. Now we're three with, with Fred Menick joining, but how do we make this scale? Like we can't do traditional distribution. Like what are we gonna go talk to Kentucky, get a few bottles in Kentucky, get a few bottles and whatever. Like we can't do that. We need to figure out how do we, how do, we do this? And, and we always knew that we wanted to kind of do like an online model. Like how do we, how do we make this happen? And it was just fortuitous timing that bring it up for the third time. So Blake from bourboner.com, he was actually, he got his hands on a liquor license from somebody that was going out of business in Washington, DC. So to kind of let your listeners know, Washington DC is a little bit like the wild west when it comes to liquor distribution. They have the ability to purchase anything direct from a wholesaler manufacturer and sell it online. So that means they cut out that whole distribution layer and that distribution model. And by the way, when I talk about like the layers that are in here, so like as a wholesaler or as a, as a manufacturer, you know, you want, you have to sell it to the wholesaler. Wholesaler has to make their margin. Wholesaler then sells it to the liquor store. Liquor store has to make their margin. So by the time it gets to you, we'll say an $80 product that you buy on the shelf, it probably only costs uh, a manufacturer probably like $20 to make, right? Like there's so many taxes and so many layers that it gets to it. And so by being able to take a whole layer out of it, you get to make more margin as, as a, as a manufacturer, which is great. Um, plus being in DC, 
I think you, you open up shipping like to 20, maybe small 30 odd states, something like that. And so it was our way to be able to get our product in the hands of consumers as fast as possible without having to go through traditional distribution. And so it's proven to be a very successful model because we were kind of like the guinea pigs for it at first. Um, you know, he was kind of getting it off the ground, but we were the first brand to really come in and sell sell out a whole entire barrel in like 20 minutes. Wow. And so when you, yeah, so when you get an influx of like 180 orders in 20 minutes and you got to figure out how do I get this? You know, I mean, we really, we really put it to the test and, and stress test it. And so, um, you know, we, we got through a lot of hurdles of FedEx and UPS and what states are in, what states are out. And so it was, it was a, it was a very tumultuous and anxiety filled few months of making, of seeing if this would actually work. But, um, we're now two years later and happy to say we've done, I think we're getting ready to release like our 33rd barrel or something like that relatively soon. Holy so, cow. Yeah. So really looking forward to, to doing that. And we're also going to be launching a, a new product extension in Q4 this year too. Nice. So you, right now, just looking at PursuitSpirits.com, I see rye whiskeys, um, bourbon whiskeys, and I also see Tennessee. And I, I, I suggest anyone who's listening to this, I'll link you over to the episode that Kenny was talking about where y- you and Ryan and, and Fred take a deep dive into starting the brand. But how were you able to get over that Tennessee stigma? Because I remember, you know, like my going back to drinking bourbon in general, I always liked having a Beeman Coke like my buddy Chris versus a Jack and Coke because of some bad experiences in college. So I wouldn't touch anything from Tennessee with a 10 foot pole. And now you're producing beautiful brown liquid from Tennessee and you're doing so as a Kentuckian. How does that work? <laughs> yeah, it almost felt like, yeah, it almost felt like we were uh, like being a trader at first. Um, however, this is, it's been, it's been really interesting on, on how this worked because at first the and when i mentioned that person that wanted he said let's let's start a brand together he actually gave us barrel samples and when he said that they're all all tennessee bourbon we were like ah we're not interested you know blah 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 and he was like just try them if you don't like them that's fine you know no sweat so we actually brought the samples home uh we had a bottle of henry mckenna tenure which was that year was ranked like one of the best whiskeys of the world and we said, listen, if any of these are better than Henry McKenna tenure, let's do this. And I think it was like the second or the third one that we tried. We were like, yep, this is it. This is insanely good. And so being able to have that opportunity to handpick and cherry pick every single one of these barrels has really worked in our favor because we're able to kind of change, as you said, change that stigma a little bit and get people to try this stuff. Now, is it as highly and sought after as some of the Kentucky distilleries? No. But the good thing is, is that we took this model and actually started branching out a little bit. So we're now working with other distilleries, other craft distilleries. Um, we've got a few different Kentucky bourbons now that are in our portfolio. So by being able to kind of start off with this, uh, this initial, you know, I guess you'd say the, the, our first little baby, baby footstep here of being able to source these barrels, hand select them, it was able to raise enough capital that we're actually go out able to buy, you know, putting down new Kentucky bourbon as well. So we're actually putting down new make for the future and not just going to have to be buying off the source market. And, and hopefully we just continue to kind of, as I said, grow the portfolio and we want to have a very diverse portfolio, uh, not only just Kentucky and Tennessee, but we've actually started sourcing barrels from Indiana as well as New York. So we're kind of all over the place now. 
Nice. Any plans of taking a look at the southern distilleries since they have the shorter aging window since, you know, the warmer temperatures down there? Like, uh, was it Garrison's down there? So we've we've worked with, and as I mentioned, we expanded our model uh, a little bit to start working with smaller craft distilleries because what we can do is we say, hey, let us, you know, find a single barrel or two or three or four from you all. Let me let us buy the barrel direct. And, you know, so no distribution costs, there's no marketing, there's no bottling costs, like let us take care of all that. And we sell that to our audience. And what it, what it is, is we basically like pre-vet a lot of these or say vet it, or we kind of like, you know, we figure out exactly, is this good enough whiskey that a whiskey enthusiast audience or whiskey, like very centric enthusiastic audience would really like. And so when we do that, we, we kind of put our stake on it. We say like, okay, like, believe me y'all, like this is great, great whiskey. Try it for yourself. And nine times out of 10 people try it and they love it. So I feel like we're, we're batting a, a pretty good batting average there. Um, now when it comes to things in the South, like I said, we've reached out to a few distilleries and see if they wanted to do that. It just depends on a, if we feel the whiskey's good enough. Um, and then B, if they're willing to do it. So we haven't done anything with Garrison brothers yet. We've, we've had a, a few reach out to us, but you know, it's just, it's just a different climate down there. Um, and so some of the whiskeys we tried just haven't been ready yet. Um, it, it, it like I said, you got to just take it one, one distillery at a time and one whiskey at a time. No. And that's one thing I really appreciate about you and Ryan is that you've never led anyone astray. You're always going to be transparent about if you can, of where it came from, and you're never going to sell someone something that you wouldn't share with your best friends and family and the most critical tasters out there. So I think that if anyone even tuned into the first three or four episodes that you said were kind of rough to start with, but blossomed into what the bourbon pursuit is today, anyone would trust you buying any of the spirits that you guys picked out by hand. But any last parting um, words of advice as far as like starting a brand, getting into bourbon, you know, just that last bit of enthusiasm just to let everyone know what's going on in your world? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, you, you kind of helped me off or helped me right there, you know, pursuitspirits.com. We have new single barrels that have been going up uh, every two months. They sell out relatively quickly, so every two months. And once the barrel's gone, it's gone. Um, it links you directly to sealbox.com which is where you can get it delivered straight to your door. So make sure you go and check that out. And I think there's also like a free shipping code for anybody that's a first time customer over there. So you can do that. Um, and as I'd mentioned with Pursuit Spirits, we're actually coming out with a new product in Q4 this year called Pursuit United. Uh, it's gonna be a blend of three different distilleries from three different states that we've been working on now for about a solid eight months. Um, so we're really excited uh, about doing this and then Hopefully more line extensions from there, Pursuit United Rye. Uh, we actually might see a rum here as well. Who knows? Um, and then on the podcast side, we actually just wrapped up our last season of recording uh, earlier this week. So we've got a lot of, I mean, we're, we come out with a new, actually two new podcasts every single week. So Tuesdays are what we call Whiskey Quickies. It's a 60 second whiskey review. Um, so kind of break up the week a little bit. And then Thursdays are the main drop where we have anybody um, big or small with inside of the bourbon industry to kind of come on, talk to us, tell us their story. So recently we've had on like Stephen Beam of uh, Yellowstone and, and Limestone Branch. We had Brandy Rand, uh, who we recently interviewed from the IWSR, which is all about analytics. Um, we've been, we talked to uh, another guy that was the second salesman ever for Maker's Mark and took it from like 150,000 to 350,000 cases over the span of like two to three years. So 
he was there during the huge insurgent growth of Maker's Mark and kind of talked about that story and his time with Bill Samuels. So a lot of great content. We're always trying to push the envelope and move the needle in regards of new guests, interesting takes, um, and different things outside of bourbon. And it might just not be um, the bourbon in itself, but it's, you know, how do we change shipping laws and commerce laws and um, distribution, everything that we kind of talked about that are the painful things of actually being, uh, you know, either manufacturer or retailer and bringing it to the light and kind of giving anybody that's a listener an inside view of this is really what's happening with inside the industry. That's cool. And, and you guys really have a unique ability to pull back the curtain of Oz and show everyone what's going on on both sides of the table while being fair. And I'm really honored to have you on the show and I wish you and Ryan and Fred nothing but success. And I actually uh, have these episode 28 sitting in my cart because that description of, uh, is this, um, uh, going to be amaretto or whiskey I, i'm gonna try it <laughs> or is this bourbon so <laughs> it, it was funny we, we we tried that exact bottle and we were sitting there trying to like pull up this note we're like what is that like what is that note and we're like is that amaretto like and so that's kind of like how that, that name stuck so anybody that doesn't know uh pursuit series it has a thing on the bottom called show notes with if you're listening to podcasts you know what show notes are all about and we kind of like either pull out a flavor or something unique about that particular whiskey now, not everybody has the same, you know, everybody tastes differently. So maybe you won't taste Amaro in it. Maybe we did. Maybe it was just the moment. Who knows? But that's uh, that's our fun little podcast play on our on our spirits line. Well, I'll make sure to send you a message on Facebook and check in with you and let you know what I think about it. But I really appreciate your time and joining me today. And I hope you have yourself a good rest of your afternoon, Kenny. I appreciate it, Darren. And thank you all for listening. Thank you. All right, all right, all right. Well, I guess that's the best I can do as far as a Matthew McConaughey impression. I've always wanted to do that. And I have a podcast now, so why not? Anyway, I hope you guys truly enjoyed that episode. I say truly a lot. Hmm, maybe I should try to get them as a sponsor since that's like one of those fizzy beverages that's like White Claw. No, but in all seriousness, I had an amazing experience sitting down with Kenny. He's a lifelong friend. He's been through the ups and downs with me when it comes to bourbon. Um, I'm actually getting excited about it again because the hunt is on. Um, things are starting to flood into the markets in Iowa and Nebraska. It's really weird because Iowa is a state ran um, where it, everything has to come from the state. And Nebraska is unique because it goes through distributors. So when something arrives in Iowa, sometimes it arrives in Nebraska later. And it's just really fun to see how cyclical it is. And I think that this year is probably a year where I personally want to step back and find out if I can help other people find really good bourbons. So I have a little project in the works that I'm trying to put together with some buddies to figure out how we can do that in a transparent and honest way. Um, just putting that out into the ether. But I think that that's pretty cool that we have that opportunity. So that's really what the core of this podcast is about. So I mean, I'm really pleased to be presented with any opportunity to help my fellow human beings be happier and just add that little extra to their day that helps them keep going during these really weird times. Uh, I'll leave you with that because this was a rather long episode. I do always encourage you to head on over to beardwinner.com forward slash support or just beardwinner.com. Click on that green support button. Like I said, the main things that help me out are the beard um, products that I, I use, which are boss man. I've been hard pressed to find anything better out there. Um, and then also going through the Amazon affiliate link. I know it's an extra click, but if you're going to buy it anyway, it doesn't cost you a penny more. 
and it sounds like begging. I promise next episode I won't bring this up. Um, I just need this podcast to help uh, have the light stay on. So if you're going to buy something on Amazon, go ahead and go to my website first. Click on the link. It's still going to pull up the app on your mobile phone. And it's cool because I get a kickback and you don't pay a penny more. So thank you so much for supporting this podcast, sharing it, reviewing it on iTunes, and just being my biggest fan. I hope that I'm achieving my goal of leaving this world in a better place than where I found it. Well, until I talk to you in a few weeks, have a great one and a safe one. Cheers. Mm-hmm.